everyone. Welcome back to the Multidimensional Journey YouTube channel and the Multidimensional Journey podcast. Thank you so much for being here. This is your host, Ayahuasca Carr. And this podcast and YouTube channel is all about mental health, spirituality, wellness. And we talk a lot about psychedelic and plant medicine preparation and integration. And today we have an amazing guest, Rachel Harris, who's a psychologist, a therapist, a researcher, who's wrote some pretty incredible books, including Listening to Ayahuasca, and also recently Swimming in the Sacred. Both of these books are really, really helpful for both preparation and integration, both on the participant side and also the practitioner side. Whether you're in the ceremony or on the edges doing preparation and integration work, these books really go over a lot of concepts and things just to really be aware of and be mindful of. Both of these books have really helped me. You can check out the links for them down below. And before we get into the podcast, also wanted to mention if you're interested in microdosing the ayahuasca vine, you can check out the link for that down below as well. You can do that protocol in the comfort of your own home. All the information is on the website. Just make sure you look at the medical contraindications for your safety. And also my new ayahuasca preparation course was just released. It was created with the beginner in mind and also the modern Westerner in mind. So taking you from A to Z, anywhere from how to set intentions, how to pre-vet your sitter, which we actually talk a lot about in the podcast today too, um, which is really, really important, I believe, how to titrate your dose and so many other things. You can check out the link for that below. And uh, without further ado, let's get into today's podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Multidimensional Journey YouTube channel and the Multidimensional Journey podcast. This is your host, Ayahuasca Carr. And today we have a very special guest. I'm really excited to introduce her and to, you know, in the light of your new book, go on a sacred journey swimming together through your legacy, your mission, and everything you're really giving to the psychedelic plant medicine community. Super excited. So today we have the pleasure of talking to psychologist, researcher, therapist, Rachel Harris. She's the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety that was released in 2017. And her new book uh, that was just released, Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground. She has 35 years of experience working in private practice with individuals interested in psycho-spiritual development and a decade of experience working in research. Rachel received a National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award and has published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals. She has also consulted to Fortune 500 companies and the United Nations. And um, just for you guys listening, the listening to Ayahuasca and Swimming in the Sacred is definitely a book that you want to have in your back pocket if you are looking for preparation or integration resources and everything else in between for psychedelics and plant medicine. Um, welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much, Aya. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. Just so uh, want to express my deep gratitude for everything that you have contributed to the plant medicine and psychedelic community especially in the Western paradigm. It's so awesome. Uh, I personally have been inspired because you are a woman and you're also a clinician and a researcher trying to like, you know, make sense of all these uh, indigenous practices. And um, so I'm really excited just to have our listeners get to know more of your personal story. And um, like I, like we were just talking about here on uh, before we hopped on your mission, your legacy, um, so many different things. So, um, I thought we could appropriately start off this uh, our sacred journey together today with um, maybe just sharing, maybe taking us back, you know, like kind of to the beginning um, of your journey. What what called you to ayahuasca, and what got you personally involved in uh, this relationship with ayahuasca? Right, it, it is absolutely a relationship with ayahuasca. We'll talk about that, but um, ayahuasca snuck up on me. So I had um, I had been in uh, California during the late '60s. I was straight out of college. 
I was living in, and working at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California in the late 60s. So by definition, there were lots of drugs around, lots of psychedelics around, good quality psychedelics. And so, of course, I experimented and we were all very um, spiritual and psychological minded. So so the pattern was to do them in nature. And uh, so I had that experience. And then, of course, you know, I, I was very young in my early, early 20s. And eventually I went to graduate school and got married and had a kid and had that householder few decades. So when my daughter was finishing graduate school, uh, I was living in New Jersey and I was looking for um, a beach vacation. It was February, it was miserable in New Jersey. I mean, I had very low um, goals <laughs> at this point. And uh, a friend had told me about a retreat center between the Pacific Ocean and the rainforest. So that sounded good. And I could sign up for a retreat and ignore everybody and do what I wanted. I missed all the cues that indicated there was some kind of ceremony or shaman there. I didn't, I think Jeremy Narby was there giving a talk. I didn't even look up who he was. I just missed it completely. So the day before I'm getting ready to leave, the organizer calls and says, do you want to be part of the ceremonies? And I brilliantly say, what ceremonies? So she explains, and of course, given my background and where I am in my life, I'm now free for the first time. My daughter's pretty much launched. Of course, I say yes. And I happen to have um, that Ralph Metzner book that was uh, essays by therapists who had were reporting on their experiences. And so I read that overnight and I left the next day and I was ready. <laughs> and so I feel like I almost got I don't know if I could say called or tricked into there I am all of a sudden in a ceremony in the jungle. So that was the beginning. And, and you know, that first experience was just, of course, many people will talk about their first experience like this. It was just overwhelming. And my dad had died six years before, and I had some unfinished um, experiences during that time of his death and his act of dying. And I asked to be taken back to that time. And I relived it um, during the ceremony and it was very healing for me. I mean, it was just wonderful. So that was that was the beginning. That that, was, that's the beginning of that was the beginning of my new life. And mm -hmm. my new life, um, you know, circled back to my my origins of, mm -hmm. of spiritual searching, and so it yeah. was very familiar to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that beautiful and, and vulnerable share. I love how you say you were like tricked. I, I can, I wonder, it's like, I'm excited to release this because I, I wonder how many people will be validated by by your experience as well. And I also can relate to that. I didn't, I ayahuasca came to me, I wasn't searching out for it. So that's very interesting. And um, I'm, I'm curious in your research that you've done, how, how, what percentage would you say on average was that like a very common report? Like people weren't seeking it out, but it just kind of fell into their lap. Yeah, yeah, I didn't ask that. That's an interesting mm. question that mm. I, out of my 16 page questionnaire, that was not one of the questions, but it's a really interesting one. And I have to Absolutely. admit, this is the first time I used the word tricked. I mean, I was huh. surprised. It was, it was really a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. And because I had that early experience, I sort of got it right away. And as soon as I came back to the States, I called all my old hippie friends. I said, we're all going, we're all going back. And we did, we went back the next year and, and did more ceremonies. Mm. So it was something that we all recognize. And there were so many mysteries involved from the very beginning. Two of my most experienced friends, I remember sitting in a ceremony with them and they drank twice as much as I did and nothing happened. Mm. Nothing. They were completely bored. They were just sitting there. And, you know, of course we asked the shaman the next morning and he just simply said, well, they were not called. Mm -hmm. There were mysteries about this process from the very beginning. And it's not like I understood these mysteries any better. The mysteries remain. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, dosing and how a batch of ayahuasca is made and the container and all of the the little variables that can go into one's set setting and dosage. So I okay. love how you shared that because that really brings forth, uh, I don't know how to explain it. I, I was going to say the thing that maybe we're all trying to figure out, but I'm not too sure if we ever will. So it's very interesting. Mm. Um, so, okay. And so the first time you took it just for timeline, what, what year was that? Oh, that was 2005. 2005. Wow. 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 Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And then, so from there you took it, you had this amazing relief, reliving experience with your father. It sounds very impactful. I'm, sh I'm sure it was, it's hard to describe these experiences sometimes. And so I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. You go back home to your quote unquote regular life. And then, you know, I guess we could call it integration if, if I can call it that. When did you start to like, not just want to practice with it, but to be like, okay, I want to actually go into research with this. And I want to go deeper into my professional professionism, professional professions, I can't talk with, with uh, ayahuasca. Well, let, let me be really uh, brutally honest. The second yes. year we went down, I had a really bad trip mm. and it was a bad trip that it's a common experience where I just got caught in a, um, in an, in early childhood trauma and I couldn't, couldn't get out of it. I couldn't even mm. think about how to get out of it. And, um, mm. uh, and I spent most of the night in that kind of state, just suffering. Yeah. Like, so it was not like I wasn't learning anything. I wasn't uh, resolving anything. I was just stuck in yeah. an old traumatic state from childhood. Mm -hmm. And the shaman at one point eventually noticed that I was having trouble and they came over to blow tobacco smoke on me. And I really can't stand tobacco smoke. So that was not helpful. <laughs> and I mean, I just really basically collapsed and there was an old mattress nearby. So I just collapsed on this old filthy mattress basically. And I just gave up, you know, I'm not really one of those warriors, you know, the women sure. I was swimming in the sacred book, I really think of them as spiritual warriors and I'm much more of a wimp and I just, I just collapsed. And the next morning I looked so bad that, um, the, the shaman, the shaman helpers, everybody tried to do healings on me mm. and perfectly honest, nothing helped. Mm -hmm. And I came back to the States and I went to my acupuncturist who understood, um, where I had been and what had happened. And he looked at me and his diagnosis was, you're not back in New Jersey yet. I can bring you back. <laughs> so I did lots of things like that. And I did therapy and, and everything helped a little bit, wow. but it was a good nine months before a friend of mine who had been studying, um, to work with shamanic energy really helped me. And she helped me doing some energetic work over the telephone. Wow. So it's, you know, I, when I talk about mystery things, I still don't understand. It was nine months before I felt like I got, I, I, uh, that I cleared this yeah. energy that I, that wow. had been around me. So, you know, things happen in this process that we don't always understand in a Western way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's still a mystery to me. And yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know what I could have done differently. I, you know, I had, I went for different healings and maybe it just took time, but, but these things happen. And, and the thing that's easily identifiable is that getting stuck in those loops mm -hmm. of pain, and it's just a repetition. And it's, yep. we all recognize and we've been there a million times in our own stories, but just that feeling of being stuck in mm -hmm. that kind of painful loop. And, um, and yeah. I've made the most of it because I did go to therapy and got help with that. But there's a, it's important to be able to recognize that difference when a ceremony, when you get stuck in a ceremony in a painful trauma, or when you're learning something about the trauma or seeing it differently or seeing it from a different perspective. I've in other ceremonies years later, 
I've looked at early traumatic childhood experiences, but was able to see it from a different perspective. So I wasn't stuck. And mm -hmm. that's much more therapeutic. So it's really important to differentiate these kinds of um, reliving of traumatic experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you couldn't have said it better. Like, um, we, we have a lot of interesting parallels I'm learning. So, um, yeah, so I had done most of my ayahuasca work in the States and then I had my first psychedelic plant medicine car accident. That's what I call it. When, um, when I went to Peru and I, very similar to what you described, although we can never know since it's uh, so intricate, right? But it, this is interesting because it took me about two years to fully come back home from that experience. And what that, although very painful, you know, kind of like you were sharing, because it is painful to clean up these experiences. Um, but I think like what you did, like get reaching out, acupuncture, therapy, these are things that I did very similar to. Hired a trauma-informed facilitator, Maybe we'll get into this later, but I heard in another interview, you're very picky about your facilitators now, which this is also how I feel as well. Um, but it's it's really like a lot of people who listen to my podcast and my YouTube channel, I really talk about being super careful about who you're choosing to sit with, how much medicine you're drinking, you know, how we can really, um, an ounce of prevention goes a long way, you know? And uh, this kind of makes me think about something else I heard you say um, in another interview talking about, because you talked about childhood trauma. And uh, I think you, you said like, I, I do kindergarten work with people. I make sure they look at their family of origin. And I, I being a therapist too, like when people come to me for preparation, this is always a part of it. You know, let's look at the family because more than likely, <laughs> if not always, <laughs> it's going to show up in the medicine. And um, or the non-ordinary state, you know, ayahuasca, psychedelics, holotropic breathwork, whatever someone's practicing. Um, and we want to know how to work with those states rather than them kind of catching us off guard, you know. At least that's how I've taken what's happened to me. It's like now I, I feel like this duty to try and protect others. I don't know how you feel personally about what you went through. Absolutely. And I think it's important that we talk about the what we euphemistically call challenging experiences. Mm -hmm. But this is significant when you talk about, I'm talking about taking a year to work through it. You're talking about two years. And working through it doesn't mean it disappears. That's right. But it's, it's held differently in my system. And two years is a significant amount of time. I mean, that's a serious thing that you went through. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when I talk with elders in, in the community, mm -hmm. they all know somebody who's been harmed, who, who didn't, mm -hmm. never resolved it, who didn't come back. And this is, uh, and so, yes, I, I always err on the side of be careful, take your time. Right. Yeah, no, I, um, what, what was I going to say? I, oh, there, there we go. Like, um, I don't, you know, I have, I'm not, I haven't done a bunch of research on this other than my own experience, but I, I really do find, um, especially with ayahuasca is that there there's cultural differences that we need to appreciate and respect and also acknowledge that as a, as westerners we haven't been drinking ayahuasca for a millennia it's not in our dna the way it is in these lineages so taking a, a different approach like with therapy or these tools that we are very familiar with to equip us with um an advanced practice because that's what i consider ayahuasca it's certainly a <laughs> an advanced practice you know um and uh, so I'm curious, you know, in your interviews and in swimming in the sacred and speaking with these women who have been, um, who have married themselves to this work, totally committed, totally dedicated, right? Um, what, is there anything that they mentioned in terms of how they help, you know, participants prepare 
to awaken, to annihilate their ego, right? There's like a spectrum here, but like all, all of these different things, how to just prepare for a more intense experience other than their ordinary everyday lives. Right. So the, the women um, use all the medicines. So they're not, there's one woman who is trained by an indigenous shaman. So she primarily <clears throat> uses ayahuasca, but in general, they use <clears throat> the full array and uh, they are themselves very, very experienced with all the medicines at all the dosages. And one of the most important things they do in, in the intake process of beginning to consider working with someone is they do a complete medical history. I mean, one woman uses a, a form, a you know, computerized form that's like 16, mm. 16 pages long. And then she's got, she's um, goes into exquisite detail, not just about what meds you're on now, but what meds you've ever taken. Have you ever been diagnosed? Have you ever been hospitalized? And she developed this form in conjunction with medical professionals, with doctors who are experienced with the medicines. And so, wow. you know, I, a, a lot of people are now saying, well, I'm an underground guide and, and they're kind of working alone. Maybe they've had a few good experiences and they feel that they've been called and, um, but they don't really have a lot of experience and they don't have the support system that the women elders do. And that's, that's because the women elders have not talked about their practice. This part of it has not really been acknowledged, but mm. they, they don't exist, they're not isolated. They're connected to other simpatico professionals. So they have mm -hmm. doctors they can call, they work with pharmacologists, they have therapists they can refer to. And yeah. so they have a lot of consultation and information. And what I say to people, if you're considering do a ceremony and you have not gone through, nobody's asked you for a complete medical interview, don't go to them because that's, that's, that's right. really essential. Now, the, the women elders are not therapists, so they're not doing the kind of psychological preparation that it sounds like you're considering. But they're very, um, they're very clear on their own intention and supporting and clarifying the client's intention. I mean, one of mm -hmm. the, one of the, you know, I, I went back to uh, original documents from the 50s and 60s, and one of the quotes from Myron Stoleroff, who was the interviewer for the Secret Chief book. He interviewed Leo Zeff, which is the one book oh. I recommend for anyone interested in guiding. This is, I think, one of the best books, The Secret Chief, and it's online through maps. Okay. You don't even have to buy it. Um, and he, in a quote, in a, in a documentary, he said, intention is everything. So that's, this is sort of a different, this is how the women focus. This is their focus, not necessarily therapeutic, mm -hmm. but more, um, I, I consider them to be spiritual priestesses more mm -hmm. in that. Yes. You mentioned that in the book. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think you're absolutely like correct. Like, uh, and all the women who you interviewed, I just, I, anyway, what am I trying to say? I love hearing that from a, from a harm reduction perspective, from a trauma informed perspective. And I talk, I mean, um, I talk a lot about the, on the podcast about pre-vetting where you're going and you always want to hear you want to see, you want to hear a mental health, a medical questionnaire, full deep dive into that um, because it's a responsibility. You know, it's a huge responsibility to essentially be a, a spiritual, you know, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual surrogate to somebody where they're being rebirthed or going through something. Um, well, I mean, we could go over a bunch of scenarios, but right. To, right. To, to have that understanding and rapport and I, I'm very involved in the plant medicine and psychedelic community and it's what I've found is that there needs to be at least you know in, in my in my idealistic like you know mind there's got to be people on the sidelines who are doing the preparation and integration and then there's got to be people who are doing the actual facilitation because it is it takes so much energy to sit with an individual or a group just the mental emotional um, capacity 
to take on that responsibility. So I would imagine when someone's done holding space for somebody or a group for hours, they need their like their time off to breathe, to right. recuperate right. and to right. do a warm handoff, you know? So it's kind of like, you're kind of, it's like interesting. It's like this web of these facilitators and they're coordinating with, you know, other people to make sure that participant feels number one, safe and supported um, for the long term, which is, um, is uh, music to my ears. <laughs> something you said, which I've never heard anybody else except for me say it. And that is you differentiated between the jobs of preparing and integration and the job of sitting. And this is not really being differentiated. I mean, it, it, it's supposedly psychedelic therapists are supposed to do everything, but yeah. these are really two well, different jobs. Mm -hmm. And um, you'd really do want a therapist who's doing the family intake and the psychological work, and you want them to do the, a therapist to do the integration. The the spiritual warriors, these priestesses, they don't do that. That's not yeah. they're not therapists. So they do the sitting and they do the traveling with you because they know the territory so well. And this is the other warning I give is some some people who are just doing sitting are saying, well, I'm going to take a, a small dose of the medicine because I need that to be able to go with you. And if somebody says that to you, don't don't do anything with them because it means they don't have enough experience to be able to travel with you intuitively, to, totally. to know the territory so well that they can float along with you, so to speak. Yeah. And so you need someone who's straight. And one of the most experienced women told me about a situation where she had to take her client to the ER, to the emergency room. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, once she walks into that emergency room and describes what this person is on, it's obvious she's admitting to a crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was just lucky to see a doctor who was simpatico and he didn't call the police. Yeah, and yeah. He treated the person and he helped her and but um you know to be able to make that judgment call that professional call and be willing to risk yourself totally. this is really serious business yes. um it really requires a lot of experience more than just the internet the internet training i mean i can't even say it without laughing more right, than right 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 yeah yeah so and and a lot of experience with the medicines and you know yes. i I'm on this tiny island, and uh, in the winter there are only 50 people here. This is an—it's an island off the coast of Maine, so it's an old-fashioned fishing village, really lobster fishing. But in the summer there are a couple hundred people. That's still a very small town if it's 200 people. We all know each other. Right. And I had dinner at a friend's place last night, and they had she had um, been in a in a in a research protocol at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. So in her first dosing, she had a major panic attack. Major. <sighs> And I asked her, how long did it go on? And she said, you know, most of an hour. That's that's quite something to handle. You have to, you know, right. she's in a very safe situation. Right. Um, the the two facilitators were able to help her through it. She did eventually right. get through it. Um, but, you know, if, if, any, mm -hmm. if you have to understand that this can happen in any situation. Absolutely. Yeah. So what you're saying, as, as a facilitator who's going to take on this responsibility, you basically got to be ready for everything, not just the beauty, not just the bliss, not just someone coming to the truth of everything. themselves and exactly falling right. and reaching their hands to the sky, but also like you need to like safety protocols, you know, right. you need to know, right. you need to have those protocols in place. And, um, and you so someone, she, she had been meditating for six or seven years. She was herself surprised that she couldn't calm herself down. Sure. Her blood pressure was extremely, it spiked. It was extremely high, which is what happens in a panic attack. Absolutely. But most people doing underground work are not checking blood pressure. So right. this is a more complicated situation than people often consider. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely think that, I mean, to check one's blood pressure, right, is not too hard. And it's it definitely. Uh... What, do, what do you do and how do you call that? 
yeah when you say this is a medical problem and we need help absolutely so, so these are big, big important considerations absolutely yes absolutely um so just going back to my list of questions here um let me say something else now that yeah I'm go for it yeah love it go this for it Rachel. In this little dinner together the husband says he did a journey where his wife was in the house he did mdma mm -hmm. and there were people on zoom with him facilitating Facil how do you facilitate a journey on zoom you know sure. I, I really don't sure, know sure okay and the wife pipes up and she says well i wasn't really comfortable with this situation and I, i'm hearing a lot of these kinds of um new situations that were not available you know 30 40 50 years ago and um and i'm hearing more of people doing journeys home alone even ayahuasca journeys home alone without anyone and i don't i have to admit i don't really understand it i mean so mm -hmm. much important happens in that process of being attended to and accompanied and it's such a therapeutic experience and so i have to say my prejudice is don't do it that way yeah do it with a guide who's there an experienced guide in flesh and blood who right. can give you a blanket when you need one that's right i absolutely agree i think you and i have been cut from the same tree in a lot of ways and it might be because we're both trained therapists which you know it's uh i do think uh that's been very beneficial to me in in coming into this work. I really don't know what I would have done coming into this work without all my training. But yeah, so I think what you're referring to in the Western paradigm, as we would put that, is that that healthy counter-transference that happens, that reparenting by a male or female embodied person, um, the, the facilitator mirroring mother, father, sibling, uh, unmet needs, need, needs that are being finally met, completion processes, all these, all these beautiful things. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, Stan Groff, Stan Groff and his work and what he laid out in holotropic breathwork. I feel like, um, if no one, I'll leave the link for the book down below. He talks a lot about this and I really do feel like his model is a great model that we all can kind of borrow from, you know, in, in the non-ordinary state, so to speak. Yes. Yes. In his book, um, LSD psychotherapy, mm -hmm. he talks a lot about, because his background is, is in psychoanalysis. So uh, he talks a lot about counter-transference mm -hmm. and the for the psychedelic therapists to have worked on their own, their own history, their own story. And he, he even goes so far to say that the client that they're sitting with can practically read their, their mind, can, can really tune into their unconscious. So there's no holding secrets or pretending to be more than we are when we're sitting there. And so it's, it's very important to understand that this, yes, it's a traditional uh, analytical perspective and it's entirely relevant for um, in the psychedelic realms. Yes, this was one of my bonus questions, but I guess let's just go there since it's coming in our in our swimming right. journey here. I feel like we're like in a boat, you know, like going downstream. Um, but yeah, this makes me think of Kylia Taylor's work, you know, the ethics of caring. And uh, also what you mentioned um, either in chapter three or chapter seven of swimming in the sacred is um, it's really important for the guide, facilitator, sitter um, to have done their own work you know, internally, because it will inevitably, you know, show up in the non-ordinary state. And um, the city becomes very porous and permeable and their perception is so, uh, I don't know what to call it, accurate? Um, exactly. Mm, yeah. So, so, you know, no one's perfect, right? And I think it's good. I think humility is good. Um, uh, what, what do you think in just like your own, what you've witnessed in, in your beautiful life, like 
what what prepares one to facilitate this type of work you know and i guess in, in my world it's best if someone specializes in, in one plant medicine or psychedelic so to speak but you know that's just my paradigm um but like what prepares somebody there we go to hold space for such um large amounts of emotional mental physical spiritual material to arise yes yes and this this was a this was a question i asked the women elders who i interviewed and um they all started out working on themselves and they did that for long 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 they did a lot of work on themselves yeah and, um and then they found they found guides and teachers and they apprenticed that's right. and, and you know people say to me well that's just not possible today and i, I have to say yes it is i know that's a right. number of therapists who are in relationship to more experienced people and are being guided and and taught and and developed so it is happening you just have to it's sort of like searching for a spiritual teacher you have to be able to keep looking and find the right person i want to be very clear i'm not one of these guides this is not my calling mm -hmm. i was in <clears throat> i was in in the late 60s early 70s i was in many of the same spaces these women were in and i chose to go to graduate school mm -hmm. i took a different path i i am not up to them they are really quite something and the, oh. it and a good a good way that um, one of the women explained it. She was uh, the one trained by a Shabipo shaman. After about six years, he said to her, you're ready to sing the Icaros in ceremony. And she said, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. so this, this, is, this is what humility looks like in action. Yes. But she sat next to him. And when he sang, she knew the Icaros, she knew the songs. She would sing like a nanosecond behind him. And mm -hmm. then they would kind of whisper and compare and say, what are you seeing? What did, what did that, what did that Icaro, how did that change? How did that mm -hmm. energy change? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think of an apprenticeship as sitting at the elbow. You're right mm -hmm. next to the elder. And that's and after a year of this, she began to sing. Mm -hmm. I've been working for 25 years. So that's after this long apprenticeship. And I, I appreciate that the psychedelic yeah. therapists are not going to take six, seven years out of their lives and to go to the jungle and, you know, do this sure. kind of apprenticeship. But they can really search out people to learn from. They can work on their own history and their own case using that's the right. entities, which is different than doing it in a therapy. And, and one of the, you know, I, I explained to one of the women, one of the elders I, I interviewed, I said, the therapists have not all had their own therapy even. And she just couldn't, how can you do therapy without having worked on yourself? She couldn't believe that it wasn't yeah. a requirement for a license right. and that people would have the nerve totally. <laughs> to work with other people without working on their own story. Right. So this is really the most important thing, the work on your own self, using the medicines and in in relationship to an elder someone you can learn from and it might be more than one person yeah absolutely i have so many questions just based off of what you said so i'm trying to <laughs> um i guess one of the things is you're kind of talking about this concept of tried like okay let's say someone goes from you know and it can look and it doesn't have to look like a facilitator for everyone in your case it sounds like you started to listen to ayahuasca just on a deeper level and you just and you and then you trusted it that's what i'm trying to get at and of people who are seeking out mentors or facilitators and essentially trusting that voice within i think i'm asking multiple questions in one so just hang with me or like that girl that you know got the blessing from the mentor but she was like no you know so there's something inside of her that sounds like that's saying like i'm not there yet with yeah. my relationship with um I guess I'm specifically talking about ayahuasca here. Um, That's accurate, yes. Yeah, so, okay, so um, in your case or other people, um, or just, you know, to inspire listeners and in whatever they're being called to, right? 
um, how does how does one learn to trust that voice? Yes, that's, I, that's, that's a question about discernment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, many people come up to me and say, well, ayahuasca has called me and told me um, I should lead ceremonies. And, and I always say, well, how, how long have you been working with, with the plant spirit? And they say, well, a few months. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I don't know what to say. And I, I told this to one of the women elders, and she said, they, they might be being called, but they're being called to study, not to lead ceremonies. Right. They're being called to begin to, it's the beginning of the journey to right. begin to study with the medicine. And, you know, it's, a, it's quite, it's an unending journey. I, when I interviewed one woman, um, I spent all day with her. This is someone I know well. I had known her before I started this project. And, and we, you know, we spent hours and hours together and it's, it's, it's beginning to move closer to sunset. And she says, you know, I'm leading a ceremony, a ceremony tomorrow. And so I'm drinking the medicine tonight. And I say brilliantly, why? <laughs> she said, this, this is a new batch and I right. want to know how this medicine works. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, and I mean, just enormous respect. Right. For, um, being that careful. What is oh, the, yeah. the, each batch is different. What is this mixture like? Right. She did her own journey. And then the next day she did the ceremony with other people. Mm. And so the learning and the process of, of, doing this work goes on forever it's not like now all of a sudden someone knows what right. it goes on forever and the relationship with the plant spirit develops over time it really does it really and, does and it changes depending on where you are in your life you know i always quote um oh let me get his name right because i i always it's um albert hoffman who synthesized mm -hmm. LSD. Mm -hmm. he used to be 102 and at age 96, he took his last LSD trip. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Age 96. And yeah. I, I was telling this story to someone and they said, oh, I heard he did a journey every year. Wow. So, so there's a sense of, in, this is quite different from the research protocols where you do maybe two journeys and it's all about reducing your symptomatology so you're no longer diagnosed with depression or PTSD. Is that the way the medicines are used in the sacred world, in underground world, is they're used regularly over right. time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how they how they're used, how the medicines speak to you and call right. you changes depending what life stage you're in right. and what's coming up for you. Mm. Yeah, so many good things you're saying here in terms of the relationship aspect, you know, and how it's personified for a lot of people. Like I've I've read so many anecdotal stories, ayahuasca, psilocybin, MDMA. Can't it doesn't matter what it is. It's very relational. Yeah. Um, which I have found very helpful, you know, whether it's like supposed to be that way or not, or however you want to put that. It's absolutely. It's, yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's the relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. I think, yes, yeah, sometimes she's a little harsh <laughs> and direct, but it, generally it's a very healing relationship. Absolutely. And I think it helps heal early attachment issues. Mm, mm, yeah, that was one of my bonus questions. Look at yeah, that. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very important, <laughs> but we don't really have research on it yet. This is my clinical um, judgment call. And I think it's really important. And like one one woman I interviewed, and this is a participant. Um, you know, she was in the, in the in the ceremony group that I was in over time, and we would often put our sleeping bags together, you know, in, the, in next to each other, so we were um, travelers together, sort of. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said it was, it was terribly important. She said I can call on ayahuasca anytime, and she's there for me. And it's not just during ceremony; it's anytime. Sorry. And it's so, and this is someone whose parents were not there for her all the time. And so here she's in relationship with the plant spirit who is always available to her. And I just, wow. it was so healing and so important. And it reminded me when I had a private practice, people would call me 
just to listen to my message. They just needed to hear my voice. They didn't necessarily need to talk to me. Right, right. Called to listen to the recording. Right. And that's that's a healing attachment. Yes. Yes. Just wow. I'm like, oh, so many things. Um, that's that's definitely been my story, you know, in terms of the attachment and my my first experience, my first handful of experiences were um I was shown and revealed my true self, you know, truer than true, underneath my trauma, underneath my gender programming, underneath my cultural programming, uh, societal programming. And uh, of course, integrating that truth has been really fun, right? (laughs) But eventually coming to a place where I could truly see, I guess here, you know, going through the grief stages which I definitely think ayahuasca was an enormous catalyst for my inner parts and inner children, teenager, adolescent, um, and eventually being able to see my parents as amazing instruments of my existence and that my childhood was the perfect setup for my existence. Of course, that took like lots of work, by the way, like, please don't anyone think I just did one ayahuasca ceremony and that was it. Like, you know, we talk talk about what I, I mean, and most of my listeners know I talk about therapy tools to use and all of that, but yeah, I mean, I mean, we can, this is the question I want to ask you. I mean, you know, ayahuasca has been, you know, hugely influential in the trajectory in which my life path has gone. I didn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to take plant medicine one day and this is going to be my life. But, you know, I've, in some ways I've built an entire identity around the thing that has brought me to my identity, you know? Um, and so for you, like, what's your relationship with ayahuasca been, whether, you know, attachment style or not, just like, how is it, how has it shaped your life? And then the second part, if we can get to it is like, what do you think your life would have been like without it? Oh, that's, that's a fun question. I can't, I, I can't even imagine because this has been my whole life for about 20 years now. Um, You know, what's really interesting is when I wrote the ayahuasca book, I had a lot of energy and support from my relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. And at Mm. one point I had, uh, I had written the research chapter, which is about the neurological research. And when I got my degree, there, there was no neurological research. So um, I wanted it vetted by a cognitive scientist. And I said to an old friend of mine, I said, you know, I'm two people away from the Dalai Lama, but I don't know anyone who knows a cognitive scientist. And she says, oh, I know a professor at Berkeley who also drinks ayahuasca. And so he vetted that chapter for me, which was so Mm -hmm. helpful so that I had real confidence that I had reported on the research correctly. And, um, and it was, and I just felt, you know, what a, what a coincidence. I mean, it was just sort of off the chart. And so I felt like I really had help. I did not have that kind of support when I wrote the Swimming in the Sacred book. Mm. Because the, the women are not necessary. It, it was it was not about ayahuasca primarily. It was about the women and they use all the medicines. So it was it was a much broader perspective. And I really felt on my own, you know. Mm. And, uh, mm. and after and and I didn't do um I had I had not done a ceremony in a while. And when I went back into ceremony after the book was was done. I go back into ceremony and I see a vision of my fingerprints and I feel like, hmm. oh, she's identified me. I'm back. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it was very funny for me. Yeah. So she got me. So I feel like, oh, now I can be kind of free to have my own relationship again and my own connection. And um, and I, it's, you know, it's, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not working with the whole broad spectrum of psychedelics. I'm really back to just my own process and my, my own journey. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and ayahuasca is my primary medicine. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, cool. I love that. So I did mo most of the, the newly hatched psychedelic therapists are working with the legal medicine that's ketamine. Yes. But we're sort of ignoring that ketamine is really not a psychedelic at all. But these are people who are going through psychedelic therapy training right. online, calling themselves psychedelic therapists, and then working with a dissociative. Right. And their experience is mostly, of course, with ketamine. Sure. And maybe they've had one or two other experiences. And this is a whole different um, branch mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of, of the community, so to speak. It's very yes. different. Absolutely. And, and we need to be very clear about this, that this is not actually a psychedelic. And in fact, um, professionals are beginning to show up in treatment centers with addictions. Absolutely. So it's a very seductive chemical. Yes. And, and we need to be aware of that. Yeah, we do. Right. Different. Um, yeah. I always, yeah, set, setting, dosage, safety, all of these, all these different things. I think what you're trying to get at is like, um, yeah, you, no matter what you're working with, we need to be careful. You know, it's exciting that something is I'm, being I'm utilized. Being more specific. I'm being very specific to ketamine because yes. it is a different category of drug. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And it's, uh, the psychedelics are not addictive. I oh, mean, I see. I see what you're saying. Ketamine yeah. can be addictive is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So knowing the intention, understanding what you're getting involved in, um, kind of what you pointed out, which I love, I feel like, um, you know, uh, an ounce of prevention just goes a long way, like doing that assessment, seeing if there's an addictive history and, you know, deciding like what I'm, I'm saying something else, actually. I'm oh, saying, tell me. I'm saying, uh, I have a friend who's a professional who's been working at an addiction center. Mm. And he said, the doctors and the nurses and the clinicians from the ketamine clinics are turning up as patients. Oh, okay. Because they have taken, they've gotten caught. Sure. Yeah. They've gone, they've, and I'm saying ketamine is a very seductive drug. Okay. Yeah. They have overused it and yes, yes. physiologically addicted. Yeah. So yeah. this is something we need to really be aware of. Yes be careful about absolutely and the, the data is that for, for the specialty of anesthesiologists 10 percent of them have addiction issues wow that's just straight medical doctors i'm not talking about psychedelics or ketamine right because the drugs are available to them sure yeah get in trouble so this is something that as a profession as a new profession we have to be careful that even the term psychedelic therapist when someone is only working with ketamine is not quite accurate yeah, yeah. This, this drug is a different it's a different ball game yeah absolutely the plant medicines or even lsd yeah no thank you for pointing that out and you know sharing that wisdom with our listeners because you know ketamine is is definitely popping up everywhere there's ketamine clinic on everyone's corner and you can get it just shipped to your house these days so you definitely want to be careful that's for sure and and one 20 something who did who interviewed me mm -hmm. she said overnight the party drug went from cocaine to ketamine mm. That's the party drug. Mm. So I think we need to be aware of, of a warning about this chemical. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's so there's just so much happening right now. There's so much available, you know, yes. there's a, it's definitely historical to say the least. Yeah. Um, and kind of, you know, one of the questions I had, and I was really curious about kind of like, what do you see for the next five, 10, 20 years in, in this realm of plant medicines and psychedelics? So what do you believe you know, the Western paradigm of psychedelics and plant medicine works as we're all figuring it out together and evolving. What do you think is missing or what could our community use more of? Oh, gee. 
Well, right. You know, <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. But, you know, it's a big one. Yeah, totally. Well, just, you know, based on your your wisdom, because you definitely have eyes and ears and years of experience. And and I talk to a lot of people. I listen to yes, a lot of people. Yes, yes. So when I gave my talk at MAPS in June in Denver, mm. I opened up. And, and, and challenge the audience, how are we as a culture, as a modern Western culture, how are we going to hold these medicines? I mean, the indigenous cultures already have a healing, yeah. sacred way of holding them. We're in a learning process. So, so far we're holding right. them medically, they're medically controlled, and we're holding them entrepreneurially. People are trying to make money on them. That is correct. And then there's the underground. Mm-hmm. And this is so far, I think, how we're holding them. Now we're talking about them therapeutically, but that's within a medical context. Yeah. Now, how do we hold them in a sacred way? Yeah. And this culture is maybe not very good at holding anything in a sacred way. So how do we learn how to do that? And that's what I challenge my audience with when I open up a talk. Mm. I I don't know what will happen as things progress, but um, how do we have a sacred container Mm. medicines that can be healing and um, transforming. I, yeah, I don't have love an answer, that. I, I don't have an answer for it though. I don't have a recipe. Um, but I, I can say that you know I'm one of the main researchers d- dealing with um, doing the study with psilocybin and terminal cancer patients. He said, you know, the way things are going, he's almost sorry these medicines have become available mm. to the public sure. as much as they have. Sure. And uh, it's a little worrisome. Yeah, how, yeah. How our culture will will hold them and how our culture will be willing to be transformed by the medicines i mean here's uh i love this phrase what do the what do the plants want mm. oh mm-hmm. yeah and so how and i think it's a very good question what do the wh- whether we think of the plant spirits or the medicines what what do they want this is good i feel like we could go a whole another hour just with that well it's interesting because it's such a parallel to your first book which the first word is listening yeah. Listening. So that me that would mean to be in integrity and intention and to really have a relationship, which I do think, oh, yeah. I mean, we have a lot to clean up collectively in terms of our relationship in the West, whether that's with our earth, whether that's with each other. So I think we got a lot to integrate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I have a friend, this is totally separate from psychedelic. Yeah. Nothing to do with psychedelic. Yeah. When she was 23, she had a full-blown Kundalini experience. Oh, yeah. You, I heard you talk about this. Yeah. She's, she's a dear friend, and, and she's extraordinary. So she's in her early 70s now. And I asked her, how long did it take you to integrate that experience? And she just looked at me and laughed. She said, I'm still working on it. Yeah. This is what integration means with these medicines. It's not a couple of sessions. Right. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's how does life unfold as a right. result of this experience? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, well, this has been an enlightening, inspiring, and just uh, I'm definitely going to have to have you on for part two. So we'll plan for that. And uh, Rachel, is there anything else you want to leave the audience and the listeners with in terms of, I think we just talked, what we just talked about was a great way to leave things, but just leaving room on the floor for you in terms of I'm, I'm last always, words and thoughts. I'm, I'm always concerned about everybody's safety. So I think take your time. That's right. That's right. Andy, like I said, I feel like you and I are cut from the same tree. So a lot of my channel is dedicated to that right there is how to, you know, prevent a disorienting, chaotic or traumatic psychedelic or plant medicine experience. So 
we will I will take that and I will continue to carry that on as, as long as I can um, so we just want to take a moment to thank Rachel for all of her incredible contributions to the psychedelic and plant medicine community thank you thank you so much thank you for your time and energy today just really really appreciate it and for the listeners uh, for listening to ayahuasca and swimming in the sacred both links are down below to both of Rachel's websites and then also links to Amazon where you can purchase her books, paperback, audible, Kindle, whatever you like and enjoy. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, be sure to use the comments and the poll down below. If you have any follow-up questions for Rachel or anything else you want to continue to interact with. And once again, this has been the multidimensional journey, your host, Ayahuasca Carr with our lovely uh, guest, Rachel Harris, and we'll see you guys next time. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Aya. (laughs) 